Well, it's lovely to be here. Nice to see you all. Um, please, in your Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. I teach at the Cornhill training course, and the first class I give um, opens with this phrase, all of the Bible is preachable. And then in the break afterwards, they all come to me and go, is it really? Is there any parts of the Bible that are unpreachable? And just to prove that I really believe that, we'll do Exodus 21, 1 to 11. Uh, Exodus 21, 1 to 11, Moses writes this. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Let's pray. Father God, you are a speaking God. You've spoken decisively and fully and finally in your son, the Lord Jesus. So please tune our ears to hear you this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Exodus 21, 1 to 11. Solomon Northop, the diary writer who wrote the book that is the background to 12 Years a Slave, finishes with these words. There may be humane masters, as there are certainly thousands of inhumane ones. There may be slaves, well-clothed, well-fed and happy, as there surely are those half-clad, half-starved and miserable. Nevertheless, the institution that tolerates such wrong and inhumanity as I have witnessed is a cruel, unjust and barbarous one. Men, in their imagination, write, may write fictions portraying lowly life as it is or as it is not. They may speak with owlish gravity upon the bliss of ignorance. They may discourse flippantly from armchairs of the pleasures of the slave life. But these are fictions. And the truth they would find if they toiled with the slave in the field, slept with him in the cabin, fed with him on husks. If they witnessed him scourged, hunted, trampled upon, they would come back with another story that they would write. As I have, writes Solomon Northup. In many ways, that does capture the hopeless and helpless plight of a slave in the mid-19th century. An unconscionable industry stripping persons of their dignity, value and worth, exploiting them in many ways 
that our collective psyches will never be cleansed from. Thinking about the transatlantic slave trade, saw on the 7th of June 2020, Henry Coulson, in the city of Bristol, stripped from his plinth and thrown into the sea. People are getting very real about the atrocities of the past. But I guess my fear is that in trying to address the wrongs of eight and nine and ten generations ago, we're missing the slavery that is happening right on our doors, right in our world this very day. It's estimated by Amnesty International there are 800,000 slaves in the country of Niger today. Every week in Algeria, there are slave markets where hundreds of slaves are bought and sold. In much of the developing world, there are factories staffed by, sla- staffed by slaves who work brutal hours and still never quite earn enough money to live. And even on our shores, people enslaved by drugs trafficking people enslaved in the sex industry, people enslaved by just generational poverty, out of which they will never climb. This situation that we know would have been very familiar to the people who Moses is writing to. You see, theirs was the experience of the Exodus. This Hebrew people who went to Egypt for protection and prosperity during the time of Joseph, soon enslaved en masse by the Pharaoh. To be a Hebrew was to be a slave. To be a Hebrew was to work endless hours in atrocious heat, being made to work harder and harder with less and less materials to do your job. To be a Hebrew in Egypt was to know poverty and affliction, to know hopelessness, to know helplessness, to know abuse. The Hebrews who had come to Egypt for safety and security became an enslaved people where Egyptian taskmasters brutalized them and murdered them with absolute impunity. To be a Hebrew in Egypt was to know unprecedented times of tyranny, oppression, and pain. And in the midst of this brutal regime, after it had gone on too long, God's people cry out to their gods. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You see, God cares passionately about his people. He cares passionately about those that are on the margins of society. He cares for the widow and the orphan, the enslaved and the impoverished. And as the story of Exodus unfolds, God rescues his people in order that everyone would know that he is the sovereign Lord and he is on the side of his people. God commits himself to them on the other side of the Red Sea to show that he is the God who will always care for, always protect and always rescue and sustain his people. 
They then go to Sinai where God ratifies his covenant with his people, again committing himself eternally to them, whilst also giving them good laws that display his goodness both to them, but as they live them out, reflect his goodness to the world around. And then the final movement in Exodus is the bit that reads like the Ikea catalogue once you get past Exodus chapter 25, where it's all about you know, tassels and tent posts and the furniture going on in the tent. But the point is that this is God setting up a tent so that he might dwell with them. The ultimate purpose of God was not just that his people would know them or trust him. The ultimate purpose was that their God would live in their midst. They live in a tent So he gives them a tent to build so that he can live with them. If you want a summary of the book of Exodus, then Exodus 29 verse 46 does well. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The story of Exodus is not just about a rescue. It's about God moving in to live with his people. So now with that in mind, Exodus in um, the forefront of our minds, let's think about the immediate context. In Exodus 19, the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai. It is the scariest scene imaginable. It's like the God of the universe have said to the special effects department, let's turn everything up to the max. Let's have fire and thunder and lightning and smoke. Let's have a trumpet that just gets louder and louder and louder and louder. God on the top of the mountain is holy and scary and the mountain is trembling and the people are trembling. And then from the top of the mountain, God speaks the ten words, the ten commandments. And it says this, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood far off. And they said to Moses, we can't cope with this. We can't cope with hearing God's voice. So this is what we'll do. God will speak to you. You will speak to us. You will be our mediator. God will teach you and you will teach us. And the first thing that Moses teaches them is this Hebrew word, mispatim, which is the word case law. God is going to teach them the extrapolations of the Ten Commandments. He's going to give them situations and scenarios in order to teach them how to live as his people, to reflect his goodness out into the world. These various case laws take up Exodus chapter 21 to Exodus chapter 23, and they're a part of the Bible that we so easily gloss over. We get the Ten Commandments and we're tempted to stop there. We might fast forward to the golden calf. We certainly don't want anything to do with um, Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Numbers. And we might just turn up at Joshua when we're ready for some good battles in the promised land. However, these laws give an excellent window into the character and purpose of God. They reveal what God is like and his grace permeating the community in order that they might be a grace forged people. And it is no accident, I think, on the back of all that this Exodus generation has been through, that the first block of case law is about how you treat slaves. Teaching freed slaves how they're to do slavery better 
than the world around. If you look just down a little bit in our passage to Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, you'll see that the kind of atrocities um, carried out during the transatlantic slave trade are already um, a capital offence. Do you see? Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. That's at least 3,000 years before William Wilberforce ever stood up in Parliament. However, there's no getting away from it that um, Exodus 21, 1-11 is about slavery. And we hear the word slavery and we want to step away. But I want us to wrestle with these laws this morning because I think they are beautiful in context and have enormous import for us today. And so the first thing we see is this. They were revolutionary in context. They were revolutionary in context. The passage has a straightforward structure. It splits into two sections, one concerning male slaves, verses 1 to 6, one concerning female slaves, verses 7 to 11. Both sections have a, uh, an opening clause that starts when, and then four subclauses beginning with if. Now, the key to seeing the beauty of this law is to understand the context. We are in the ancient Near East, living in an agrarian subsistence society. You grow your own food, and you, own, and you are only ever one bad harvest away from starvation and death. If your land doesn't produce, that's a real problem. Your farming labor force is your immediate and extended family. And so drought, disease, or difficulty places your whole family in peril. There are no overdraft facilities, no food banks, no loan mechanism, no benefit checks, no bankruptcy laws, no insolvency possible. Your food, land doesn't produce. You're flirting with death. You live hand-to-mouth in an often hostile climate, trying to eke out an existence on the land. You've been given a parcel of land by your God in the promised land, but even then there is no guarantee that there is food security going forward. So what happens if you have a bad crop because of drought? What happens if water gets into your seed? for sowing season, and it all goes mouldy and can't be used? What happens if your goat breaks out of its pen and eats all the little wheat saplings that are beginning to grow in your field? Meaning that there will be no harvest, there will be no food, there will be no way to survive. Well, this is where Exodus 21, 1-11 comes in. This is the safety net option of becoming an indentured slave on your neighbor's farm. It's written here in law, in God's law for his people. In exchange for your labor and help, you are given food and lodging. It's like what used to happen if you ate a meal at a restaurant and you couldn't afford it, you had to spend probably that evening and the next few evenings washing up to pay off your debt. You become a slave in order to survive. They take care of you in exchange for you working for them. But it's even more miraculous than that. Verse 2. When you buy 
a Hebrew slave. This is revolutionary. The onus of doing this law is placed on the slave master, not the slave. Laws for slave masters in a world where all other slaves have no rights, no protections, no liberties, and no facility to complain. In a world where all other slaves are possessions to be used and abused, traded and sold, benefited from with impunity, God's people, even if they become slaves, are to be treated with dignity and respect. To be treated as fellow members of God's people, that is brand new. If you look at how all the other ancient civilizations were doing slavery, this shines out way better, way more brightly than what is happening in the surrounding world. Not only that, but see, it is not a permanent generational arrangement. Verse 2, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free, go out for nothing. This law prevents permanent slavery and generational poverty. There is the right of freedom. And going back to your subsistence farm after six years to have another go is baked into the law itself. Now, even in 21st century Scotland, we have no facility like this, where people are given a fresh start after a period of time. We have chronic poverty in whole communities in Scotland where people are existing of no re- with no real hope of financial freedom or being able to escape their plight. God's law concerning slaves has hope baked in. For seven year, six years you're looked after and then given another chance to have another go. Providing for people in the worst times but guaranteeing a bright and better future. Verses 3 and 4 do a number of things, but they definitely guarantee the sanctity of marriage, that getting married isn't a get-out-of-debt-free card. If that was the case, it would be open to exploitation. You have a slave being looked after by his neighbour for five of the six years that he's promised to serve. Then that master takes on another slave girl from a nearby farm and she begs that slave to marry her in order that she will only have to be married to her duties for one year and then when he goes free, she'll go free. That would be so open to abuse. That would provide no real opportunity um, for uh, these laws to be played out in real time. Then also see verses 5 and 6. This is to us what seems like an unimaginable situation, where a slave has been so well looked after by his master that when offered freedom after six years, he instead undergoes an ear-piercing ritual involving a huge nail and a doorpost and says, out of love, I want to serve my master forever. We cannot imagine that happening, can we? We would think that they would grab um, freedom with both hands. But what an aspiration as a slave master to treat your indentured slaves like this so that they commit themselves to serving you indefinitely out of love. 
Suddenly, see, we see once we get behind these laws in the context of the surrounding region, they're beautiful. They're better. They're full of hope, full of protection. They instill dignity and value in, and worth, even to people that have dropped to the very bottom of society. When all other cultures are killing their slaves and abusing their slaves and trading their slaves and profiting from their slaves, God's people do it radically differently. Now see verse 7. There are different stipulations for women, for daughters. And again, let us think about this in context. Imagine that your crop hasn't totally failed, but it's been very patchy and the yield is quite meagre. There is some food to feed some of your family, but not enough food to feed your whole family for the year ahead. What do you do in that instance? Well, on a purely economic level, you would sell your daughter or your daughter's into slavery. Now that seems brutal. That seems like the last thing any of us would do. But in this climate, it is the only sensible option. Daughters didn't work the land like the sons. And therefore, when it came to labor on the farm of eking out an existence and trying to do it better in the future, your boys were a better human resource than your daughters. That's just true, demonstrably true. Not only that, but your daughters would also cost, your, cost you money when it came time to marrying them off. Suddenly you would have to find a, a, a dowry to pay. And therefore, if you kept them and managed to feed them, their chance of being married is greatly diminished. Because in the situation you're in, you probably cannot afford uh, the marital price. Sons, on the other hand, would not only work hard on the farm, but they would secure a dowry. And therefore were worth holding on to because of their marital prospects. So if devastatingly you couldn't feed everyone, the only choice was to sell your daughter into slavery to a neighbouring family. This would therefore guarantee that she would be fed and looked after, she would have a future. Her labours wouldn't be as hard as the male servants. That um, The context of the day was that the, the female slaves would do domestic chores and look after um, the household and not have to work um, exhaustingly in the heat. There was also a high possibility that within that new family unit her hope of marriage would increase. She has a protected status. She can't just be um, used and abused by the men of the house into which she finds herself. There's real protection. Firstly, she's not a commodity. She cannot be sold on to others, especially foreign people. If the master is not pleased with her, he cannot get rid of her. There is the option that she can be redeemed back by her family. She can be bought out of her indentured slavery and returned home. She's not left languishing in a marginalised household to be treated badly. 
Verse 9, she can be engrafted into the family unit through marrying the master's son. That is a serious and protected slavery. She cannot be used and abused in the master's household, but her protection, rights and dignity are preserved. Also, if the situation changes and another wife comes on the scene, she still needs to be properly looked after. She cannot be starved. She cannot be impoverished. She cannot be neglected. And if the slave master fails to do this, any of these three things to the degree that it's stipulated here, she'll go out for nothing. She's free. Such is the onus on the family into which she finds herself. Now also to do with the female slaves, there's no seven-year freedom clause. You see that? Just look, the men, it says, after six years, he will work, and on the seventh, he'll go free. That's not the case for the daughters. And that's simply because this is an ancient patriarchal world, and a free woman cannot survive or go it alone. That's just true. If she is left to her own devices without uh, a family to protect her, She's so open to being exploited, to being abused. That is what is so remarkable about the audacious faith exhibited in the book of Ruth, where a single foreign widow trusts her sovereign God as she tries to find a way to survive in the world. So we start to see, though they sound so foreign and brutal to our ears, there is reason for them. Stops people dying. Stops people being exploited. It stops people being abused. There is the creation of a safety net for those who fall on hard times. Obviously, in an ideal world, you wouldn't need these laws. And even looking at ancient Israel history, this is not a common occurrence. But we're a long way from an ideal world. Ever since Genesis 3, there's no hope of an ideal world in this creation. As creatures living in a fallen world where thorns and thistles impinge on the land as creation bites back, where sweaty brows are the payment to produce bread, these laws are absolutely necessary in demanding that God's people are looked after by God's people. It is part of the sovereign care that he shows for his people. These laws were revolutionary for them then. And as other nations looked at Israel, they were supposed to see a shining example of what a good society fueled by grace looked like. A place where slaves were cared for, had rights, had dignity and value and worth, were protected and looked after and given another go. It would look very different from the surrounding culture. But I think these laws are here because they show us a much bigger story that is to take place in the future. You see, the result of the fall is that slavery isn't a subset of humanity of people that are down on their luck. But in spiritual terms, slavery is the congenital plight of all people throughout all history everywhere. Through our failings, we have been enslaved to sin, Satan, and death. 
We, like these slaves, are powerless and helpless to free ourselves. It doesn't matter how hard we work, how much good we do, or how much effort we exert, the shackles of slavery that we have placed on ourselves cannot be loosed. We are desperate generational slaves with the taskmasters of sin, Satan, and death standing over us and brutalizing us at every turn. We are powerless not to serve them in and of ourselves and therefore need redeeming by another. And what Jesus has done for us in setting us free is even more remarkable than the ritual we see in verses 5 and 6. Jesus Christ, God himself, comes to a sin-spoiled world and in the words of Philippians 2, becomes a slave for us. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant, which is a polite translation because the word is slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Dying on a cross is a slave's death. Here we have, unlike um, Exodus 21 verses 5 and 6, we don't have a slave who commits himself forever to his master. Here we have a master who becomes a slave to commit himself forever to the people whom he loves. This Jesus who says, I love my people so much that I am willing to serve them forever through my death. I am willing to love them forever through my death. I'm willing to free them forever through my grace. I'm willing to give them a bright and hope-filled future on account of my eternal victory over their former slave masters of sin, Satan, and death. I'm willing to pay the cost that they might be free forever. Not a slave committing himself to his master, but a master becoming a slave in order that all the enslaved people might have hope forever. Exodus 21 was revolutionary, but only pointed forward to the revolution for all time. And let's bear in mind, Jesus didn't perform this ritual at a doorpost with an ear piercing. He performed this on a cross by being nailed to it, where he bled and died for us. And so picked up um, by Philip Bliss, man of sorrows, what a name, for the son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless lamb of God was he. Sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah, what a saviour. And so what does this mean for us today? If I could remember to click my PowerPoint across, it wouldn't be quite so difficult for everyone. Four quick things. Keep being served. 
all of us need to keep being served by this Jesus. You can never move beyond our need as freed slaves of his grace. We can never move beyond the cross where he suffered and died in order to serve us forever. Freed slaves, though that we are, we need to keep being served by the death of the Lord Jesus who became a slave for us. Secondly, keep being free. As those who have been freed through Jesus' death, we no longer need to act like slaves. It would be a most odd thing if a slave who had been freed constantly found himself slinking back to the fields to the bunkhouse, failing to realise that he'd been freed forever. Unfortunately, that's true of so many of us. We slink back to our former ways of life. We somehow try to become slaves again. Paul is so clear in Romans 8. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Number three, keep being compassionate. Keep being compassionate. The real sense here was that on the back of the Exodus generation's experience, they were to live life differently. That must also permeate our lives. I think particularly if you're an employer or a team leader or an employee, I think there is something very aspirational about people loving to work for you that they'll go the extra mile. They won't go anywhere else. They want to be on your team because you treat them with dignity, value, and respect. What if we long to run our teams or our companies? What if we wanted to interact with our um, fellow employees in such a way that people loved working with us and for us so much that they wouldn't dream of going anywhere else. What if on the back of the experience that we'd had in being freed by Jesus, we would treat those who were still enslaved in a way that showed and radiated a real difference about who we are and the way we lived? What if we took this seriously and treated everyone from the cleaner to the CEO with such compassion, dignity and respect? that we stuck out like healthy thumbs in what we were doing? What if we were those who were kind and nice and respectful, who were always trying to help people to take a step forward? What if people knocked on your door and said, I've been offered a salary increase at another company, but I'm not going because I love working for you. I feel this is where I belong. And I feel that I'm not going to be treated in the same way anywhere else that I go. Then see on the back of that if you don't get an opportunity to tell them why you run the team in the way that you do. And then number four, keep championing emancipation. As those who are being served by Christ, we must turn to serve others. God's people through obeying Exodus 21 were to shine brightly out into the world by caring for and protecting the weak and vulnerable amongst their own people. 
It was a sign of God's compassion to them, radiating out into their community. And I wonder if we've lost this call to emancipation. Living in a Western country that has been so shaped by the gospel over its history that now we have lots and lots of secular schemes and initiatives to take care of the marginalized in our society. We have the benefit system, bankruptcy laws, the free NHS, the state pension, all wonderful things and marks of God's general grace. However, I think we're moving towards a watershed moment where these institutions will become less and less helpful. And I wonder if we will soon have an opportunity to rehear laws like Exodus 21 and our responsibilities to care for the weak and the vulnerable, the marginalized and the oppressed, those that are enslaved. And if we do that, what an opportunity it is to show the real difference that the Lord Jesus makes in each of our lives and our communal life together. What if we heard, like Exodus 21, the truth that we really are our brothers and sisters keeper? What an opportunity there is to not only testify to the gospel with our lips, but also testify to the gospel with our lives. As those served by Jesus, we must be on the front foot in serving others and caring for them, not washing our hands of our responsibility. As Christians, we must be absolutely passionate about alleviating all suffering. And most especially, we must be most passionate about alleviating eternal suffering, which only comes about through the good news of Jesus Christ, the one who was a master, who became a slave, in order that we might be eternally served and free forever through his cross. Why didn't I pray? And then I'll hand over to Kenny. Father God, we're so thankful for Jesus this morning. So thankful that he loved us and gave himself for us. So thankful that he'd, he saw the mess that we were in and set about saving us and freeing us forever. So Lord, knowing these things, may we not just rejoice in them, but may we seek to reflect them in each of our lives. Father, help us be those who really care who really love, and who really do life as those that have been served forever by our master and our friend, our brother and our eternal servant, your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.